Hello and welcome to the Price of Football podcast, show two, the show which follows the money behind the beautiful game. I'm Kevin Day, with me as always is football finance expert Kieran Maguire. Hello Kieran, how are you? Hello Kevin, I'm very well, thank you. Um, we have a topic coming up, a Barcelona-Liverpool conundrum, which since you told me about it, I've barely slept. I've been wrestling so hard with this topic. But before that, I want to talk to you about a big story, which could be designed purely for this pod. This is the classic story of a football fan like me who spouts off about an issue without really knowing what he's talking about. And the issue in question is Mike Ashley, who instinctively, I feel, is a bad owner of a football club because I've listened to the mood music from Newcastle fans and I've repeated it and everything about him instinctively makes me feel he's a classic example of somebody who's bought into a football club in order to sell it or to get a bit of the glamour of the Premier League. And, of course, it occurs to me that I don't know if any of that is true, to be perfectly honest. So this is why this podcast is so important. So let's let's do something which I don't think many Newcastle fans would expect to hear from any podcast broadcast outlet. Let's see if there is a case for the defence for Mike Ashley. My, and my first, my first two questions are linked. First of all, why did Mike Ashley buy Newcastle United? And secondly, are Newcastle United a big club? In answer to your first question, he bought Newcastle United for exactly the same reason that he buys everything else, that he thought it was underpriced at the time, and he thought he could make some money from it. And then he sort of became seduced by football. So when when he inherited Newcastle, they were losing £500,000 a week. They had Inherit, Freddie Shepherd. Inherited is an interesting word. Well, yeah, sorry, bought it. Bought, yes. Bought it from, from Sir John Hall. So it was losing half a million pounds a week. How much did he pay for it? He paid around about 110 million. Okay, um, and since then he he has put money into the club. He he's lent it money, around about 140 million interest free. How much did you say they were losing a week at the time? When he bought- 500,000 pounds a week. A week. A week. Wow. We, we, that's how we we talk football in weeks, don't we? Yeah, they were in, they were in the Premier League when he bought them. Were they? That's correct. Okay. Yes. And Newcastle had been a reasonably successful football club. Uh, in the sense that in the previous decade to to when Ashley bought the club, it, it appeared in the Champions League four times. And it was also, to a certain extent, everybody's second club because they weren't Manchester United, they weren't a London club, so you could actually quite like them in that regards and, and hope they would have some form of success. You can tell by my face that I don't agree with the concept of everybody's second club, but we'll, we'll pass that over because it's a football finance podcast. But uh, I, Yes, I'm still intrigued by the fact that you, you mentioned their, their relative success in the 90s and their relative glamour, under Keegan especially, but yet they were losing £500,000 a week. Well, why were they losing £500,000 a week? Um, they were signing glamour players. So you think about uh, Shearer, okay. Aspria, Michael Owen, uh, David Ginola. They, they were signing these players and they were paying them, at what, the, what, by, the, by the money at the time, yeah. decent wedge. And as a consequence, they were losing money. So the owners decided they couldn't continue to, to survive on that level of losses. They sold out to Ashley and Ashley started to run it more like a business, which from a football fan's perspective... Is a nightmare. Yes, it is. Well, we know that from Simon Jordan at Palace when he started referring to customers rather than fans. But in, interestingly, because you, you mentioned that he was seduced 
by the, the club or by football. Because at the start, the relationship with the fans was, was relatively good. Then he was he was quite public. He was quite high profile. He went to fans' forums. He, he Social media-wise, he was doing a good job. He, he, he seemed to be enjoying himself. It didn't take long for that to... So when did the magic wear off for him and, and why? Well, the, the magic started to wear off in, in the same way as it does with any relationship between a football fan and either players, managers uh, or owners. It's when they started to lose matches. So the, the, the previous decade, um, Newcastle had averaged seventh position in the Premier League. Now, if you compare them to Spurs, they were actually higher than Spurs. And yet we've got this concept today as Spurs are being yeah, a big six club. You look at the numbers, which is what I do, and that was, wasn't, simply wasn't the case. No, I, I have to say that really surprises me because in my head I would have always had them, you know, two seasons of, of glorious failure and, you know, the, those memorable Liverpool games. But seventh is a bit of a surprise, I have to say. Yeah, and I think Newcastle fans, they bought into Mike Ashley, successful businessman, we're going to kick on um, because under Hall and Shepherd there had been demonstrations and strife and some of the things similar to what we're seeing at present it didn't work out that way because the first thing that Ashley did was say I'm not going to pay sky high wages Um, he he did bring back Kevin Keegan and that didn't work out and and if you listen to Kevin Keegan speak it, it was because Keegan wasn't allowed to manage as far as he was concerned because Mike Ashley's budgetary constraints were so severe that he couldn't sign the type of players that he wanted, the flair players that you normally associate with Keegan. You know, we, we, you know, we, we'll, we all know that with Kevin Keegan, we're looking at 4-3 matches every week. Yeah. Well, uh, Ashley seems to me a, a savvy businessman in his other business interests. So presumably he bought Newcastle after having done some fairly intensive due diligence and he would have known what he had to do to turn it round. So presumably this is not something he would have said to the fans beforehand that the glory days are, are, are going, we're not going to be spending money, we're not going to be paying wages. No, no. And, and if you then start to look at what he did do, um, it was the, the wages in Newcastle. We all know that footballers' wages go up and up and up. Yes. Well, they didn't at Newcastle. They just flatlined. Oh, OK. And then in terms of the transfer market... Um, yeah, Michael Owen was signed, what was it, 2005, 2006. Newcastle didn't break that transfer record until this January. Of course, yeah. We're only just finding out now from Owen's autobiography that his time at Newcastle wasn't a happy one and that he considered it a step down, which kind of relates back to my first question, is can we financially then refer to Newcastle as a big club? I think Newcastle could have been a big club if Mike Ashley had run it in a different way. Because when he did acquire the club, it was effectively the same size as Spurs financially. And now, if you look at Spurs, Spurs are a billion-pound club. They own a 60,000-seater stadium. They, They are selling this, that and the other, and they're qualifying for the Champions League. But they invested in players. If you look at the first seven years or first eight years of Ashley's reign at Newcastle... um. We normally associate success with buying players. Well, the the average net spend at St James's Park for eight years seven hundred grand a year. A year, really? A year? A year? Oh, okay. And you you're not going to get players of a high caliber. So all of a sudden, from the likes of Ferdinand Shearer yeah. you know, or Owen and so on, it was Stephen Guivarch and so on. Has he invested in infrastructure then? 
training ground, stadium? Has he spent money on that? Not not significantly. Um, and if you do speak to Newcastle fans, they will bring up the issue of something called Strawberry Fields, which is a piece of property which Newcastle did own. It's hard not to say forever after that, isn't it? It's really difficult not to say. I've said it now because the universe would have punished me for not saying forever. I apologise as you were making a sensible point and I interrupted for essentially comedic purposes. <laughs> and um, Strawberry Fields, I think it's Strawberry Fields or Strawberry yeah. Park, um, that was sold to another Ashley company. So the Newcastle fans, their claim is that Ashley is selling off part of the family silver oh, right, to make okay. money for himself. Right. And then you've got the issue of um, Sports Direct because the the stadium name was changed for a short period of time and that went down extremely poorly. There's a very close relationship between Sports Direct and Newcastle. If, if, you, if you go to St. James's Park, you will see the perimeter advertising, Sports Direct, get an awful lot of coverage. Well, that's, that brings me on to, uh, do you know what? I always write down two or three questions. Uh, and I learned from the pod last week, the first one that we did. And thank you, by the way, for all your feedback from it. Um, I learned that as each pod goes on, I just scribble more and more questions down. But... There are three questions that have come up off the back of that sentence. One of them is about Sports Direct. Because we did have, or I did have, quite a few tweets defending Ashley, saying there is another side to the story. I generally aren't going to tell you the names of those people because there are some angry Newcastle fans out there and it, it might lead to them getting some angry responses. But one of them in particular pointed to the Sports Direct relationship as possibly a good thing because... There was a lot of free advertising involved. There was a lot of cross-branding. And, and is that is there any element of truth in that? I don't think Newcastle get much in terms of advertising from Sports Direct themselves. Right. Um, Ashley claims, um, and, and there's no evidence to say this isn't the case, is that Sports Direct is, is a vehicle through which Newcastle can sell their kit. He effectively sell, he claims that he sells it at cost plus a handling fee and all of the rest of any profits go, go to the club. So that's his defence. Right. Newcastle fans just feel that their, their historic home has been turned into an advertising campaign I, for I, Sports I, Direct. I, I understand. I mean, that's where it's a classic example of a, uh, a business savvy owner not understanding the, the mindset of of football fans. Um, what intrigues me, you mentioned that 700,000 figure for, for transfers, etc. In that case, why would you get rid of a manager in Benitez who is probably more able than most, and I think possibly Roy Hodgson is one other, who can work within those transfer restrictions, who can work with players that are paid less than other players, who can craft a team out of players that may not get into other Premier League teams. Well, I agree with you. I think Benitez is probably worth you know, seven to ten points a season yeah. with it, with his tactical nous, and, and exactly the same with Roy. Um, I think it came all, all these things come down to money. Rafa Benitez felt that he was worth worth a pay rise. Um, he was well paid at Newcastle. Um, yeah, the estimated fee was six million, and then somebody from China came in and offered to close to double that. Right, and and then then the ball was left over for Mike Ashley. But I think he would have stayed had he been given a better transfer budget. Because what Benitez's concern was at the start of the season, what were his ambitions? It was to survive in the Premier League. And that becomes 
pretty much of a grind, especially if, if you are a manager who's previously been at Liverpool, Real Madrid, Chelsea, clubs of this nature. And then when you're told you're, the extent of your ambitions is you know, anything above 15th, you know, we're, we're opening the champagne, yeah. that seems pretty tough to deal with. And presumably Steve Bruce's wages will be a lot lower than Benitez's, I'm guessing. One would imagine so. Um, I mean, the nature of uh, football management is that you will be on a big bonus for keeping clubs up, and that can that can run easily run into the millions. Next question. Uh, he's been there longer than I thought, actually. So he took over the club when? 2007, I think it was. So he's 12 years, coming up to 13 years. Uh, in his other business dealings, he's not quick to offload things that aren't going to make him money as you've pointed out it seems that he's not going to make or Newcastle can't make money he's made cuts he's he's lowered wages transfer fees etc why is he still there then what what's in it for him financially because he strikes him as a, as a man who he's not going to just keep throwing money at a club if there's not going to be ultimate success or he's not going to make a profit is he, is he there because he's not been able to find somebody to buy it will he not make a profit well, I, th- I think it all comes down to, to price. I mean, you, you've said he's put money into the club. He's not put any more money into the club for the last seven or eight years, oh, okay. apart right. from the year they were in the championship. And what he did there is he saw the value of his investment collapse. So he was hoping to sell it for somewhere between 300 to £350 million. Pounds. You drop down into the championship you're losing three quarters of that value. So therefore, he stuck £30 million into the club. He said to the manager, just go and sign whoever you want to. And Newcastle went up as champions that particular season. And then he took that £30 million out. Now, he had promised the Newcastle fans, every penny we make from the Premier League will go on to investment in the pitch their argument is, well, hold on, the first thing you've done is you've taken £30 million out of the club, so you're not being, fa- you're not being fair with us. But also, he must know as well, because the shirts issue is an interesting one that you talked about, selling the shirts in the, in the Sports Direct outlets, because there was a quite high-profile boycott of the club shop, for example, at the start of this season. So I'm guessing Newcastle fans aren't buying the shirts anyway. So that, I know that's not a very big revenue stream, but that's surely an indication to him that there's no profit to be made and yet he's he's still there that's what that's what intrigues me about the fact that he's still there it is an interesting one and i know newcastle fans would long for him not to be there but there must be a reason why he's yet to 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 move on even if he's he'll he'll make more than he paid for it even if he doesn't make a huge amount i think if you if you walk up if you you catch a train up to newcastle write out a check for 350 million pounds today you can have newcastle it's simply a price issue. Mike right, Ashley okay. has got a very, very thick skin. Because if you think he's unpopular at Newcastle United, go to Glasgow. Go to Rangers, oh, right. where he's in dispute with the club owners. From next season, Glasgow Rangers can't sell their own kit in their own shop unless Mike Ashley agrees to some form of settlement. I did not know this. What's, what's the background to that? Well, originally... Glasgow Rangers did have some financial difficulties. Yes, and we're aware of those problems. Ashley lent money or put money in with conditions attached. And since then, he's fallen out with the owners. Uh And there's ongoing court cases which are rumbling away. Um, Glasgow Rangers fans and Glasgow Celtic fans are 
very, very obsessed with their clubs, exactly the same as Newcastle, exactly the same as all of us. Um, and he is public enemy number one with half of that city um, and probably 100% or 99% of Newcastle as well. Mike Ashley's got a very thick skin. Right. He, he's not bothered by people calling him his names. He doesn't engage in social media. Um, he wants to make money and he's made money in every other aspect of his life. So is a certain stubbornness and pride about this rather than any football-based romantic relationship wanting to, wanting Newcastle to improve and be there when they're in the Champions League? I, I think so. I think okay. he, had, he had the opportunity um, 10, 12 years ago when they were effectively a little bit bigger than Spurs. If he had invested large sums of money then, or even medium sums of money, he could be where Spurs are today. And the irony is, he's probably the biggest loser from not investing in the club. Because Newcastle, if they'd been regulars in the Champions League, they'd be worth a billion pounds today. We wouldn't be talking about you know, splitting hairs between sure, 300 sure. to 320 to 330, which is what, what is happening in, in terms of the people who are coming forwards. He could have sold the club for three or four times that amount. Now, this... Um these guys on the train with the cheque for 350 million quid uh, are advising to fly, personally, with with a high level. Are, are there people knocking at his door? How, how many potential buyers? I mean, we've seen every week on Sky there's a new report of Peter Kenyon starting a consortium, so-and-so starting a consortium, and it seems that all that is that somebody's tweeted that Peter Kenyon might be interested. How many genuine offers have there been? For Newcastle, how close has it come to him selling to anybody? Well, I think the the three most high profile ones. There was Amanda Staveley um, about two years ago. I think uh, Mike Ashley went out for a meal with her, and, and that, of course, we got people. That, that you know, as far as the fans are concerned, the deal had of been course, done. Of course, of course. Um, I think he was disappointed that the the terms of the deal weren't particularly good to him. Um, there's been fake shake news. <laughs> this summer, um, somebody, somebody's come from the Middle East right. and they said, oh, we've done our due diligence, we've got the price, and then they disappeared off right. the radar. Okay. And then finally we've got the, the the Peter Kenyon bid. Now, there's been a prospectus go out for that and that was sent out to a number of journalists and for some reason it was also sent to me from some anonymous email address. Oh, okay. So it was sent to me at the university. I took a look at it and... It looked very amateurish. Oh, so it looked okay. to me so amateurish. I wasn't even convinced it was genuine. Right. But by all accounts, it is. So a prospectus is when people look for bids to, or look for them to, to be part of a bid. To, well, to be part of a consortium. Yeah. What, what Peter Kenyon was going to do, he was going to front this up. Right. And he was going to people and say, well, I, I don't think anybody, any one individual person is going to write out a cheque for 300 million. Right. But if you stick in 25 and you stick in sure. 30, so he was going to, to high net worth individuals and he was trying to sell it. In exa- effectively, he was an estate agent for Newcastle United oh, yeah. um, trying to, to convince people to buy into but the you club. You don't think that was a particularly genuine bid then? Or the bid, well, the bid hasn't materialised oh, okay. as far as we're aware. So whether that's people have done their homework, looked at the numbers and said, these look like pie in the sky. I thought that they were very ambitious in terms of the proposals that Peter Kenyon had. Or it could be that there's not enough people with a spare 25 to 30 million because they want control of the club themselves rather than being part of a group. So for Newcastle fans looking for good news, is your instinct that there could be a buyer or is is your instinct that it's probably only going to be somewhere from China or the Far East that could buy and and it's not a good prospect for any potential buyer. 
I, I think to a certain extent, it, it's an opportunity missed. If he'd sold it five years, eight years ago, then it would have been a good purchase. Right. People are now thinking at the start of every season, there's a 30% chance of Newcastle being relegated, if we're realistic. Right. Do I want to spend £350 million on a club which next year is playing Millwall and Barnsley and clubs of that nature? Well, hopefully Mill will go down, so there won't be. But um, let's before I do the, the full judge duty on this. I mean, is there is there a case for the defence? But I, my mind goes back to Ron Nodes as a Palace fan, who for years we moaned about as being cautious, financially conservative. When we finished third in the old Division One in 1991, he sold players rather than bringing players in to push on. And, and we hated it. But it, then it turned out when he when he left, it turned out he had been a very good curator of the club's finances and his leaving left us in a in a pile of state. Is there an argument to be made in Mike Ashley's defence that he has been a sensible club owner? Is, is, there, is there anything that a Newcastle fan could say, no, hang on, he's he's done a decent job. Others may have speculated to accumulate and the accumulation may not have happened. He's, he's steadied the ship. It, it's not losing £500,000 a week at present. It can pay the wages bill at the end of every month. But that's not very exciting because no. nobody's interested in balance right. sheets. And it, we don't go to football to watch that. Yeah, well, unfortunately, I'm learning from you that perhaps we should start trying to do that in future. Um, they, I, I had, nothing you've said has maybe changed my mind about Mike Ashley, I have to say. Uh, many, because I know quite a lot of Newcastle fans who wouldn't be happy. He's, he still strikes me as uh, Newcastle will be better off without him and that he does represent a certain type of football owner that has become a cliche, but I think most of us feel club owners are like that, with one or two exceptions. And I'm sorry that there isn't more optimistic news for Newcastle fans, but we have to move on. And we have to move on to a story that I still... I've, I've read it. You emailed it to me over and over again. This The Coutinho story where Barcelona... Oh, no, hang on. Liverpool owe Barcelona, Barcelona owe Liverpool, but neither of them owe... It's best if you describe it to yourself, essentially. Right. Because um, this is an astonishing story, even by my standards of, of lack of in, lack of knowledge of football finances. Um, I, I collect, a bit like Panini stickers, I collect sets of football club accounts. Of and... course you do. I wish you could see this man at home, listeners, because you would, you, that wouldn't come as a surprise to you. To be perfectly honest, and so and so, Nuke, and so uh, Barcelona's accounts came out. So I was rummaging small through the small print, and it said they still owe Liverpool ninety four million euros in respect of the Coutinho transfer, and this is for a player that's presently at Bayern Munich. And then I looked at the small print further, and it says, "But Liverpool have collected the money." So Barcelona owe ninety four million in respect of Coutinho, but Liverpool aren't due to receive anything. So you look a bit further, and what Liverpool have done is that they've said, when we sold Coutinho, we got some cash up front, and the way that all transfers are done these days is that if it's large sums of money, you pay in instalments. Because even a big football club like Barcelona can't write out a cheque for €150 million Euros in one go. So we'll spread it over a number of years, and we'll give you some IOUs. And, we'll, and you, you can effectively cash in those IOUs each year. And then Liverpool have taken those IOUs and they've done something which the bankers will call discount factoring. And they've gone to a bank in, a, in the same way as you or I might go to a payday loan company and says, I'm due to be paid on Friday. Here's my pay slip. 
but I need the money now. So Liverpool have gone to a bank and they said, these are the IOUs for, from Barcelona. They're worth 94 million. How much will you give us for them? And the bank will say, well, Barcelona are probably going to pay. We'll give you 90 million for them. You can tell. I see. You can tell by my. You're waiting for a response, but you can tell by my face that. So, so they are both owed and not owed ninety four million pound, in a way. Well, Liverpool, Liverpool have got the money from the bank, right? So now, oh, so right, okay. Right. So what Liverpool yeah. have done is that they've sold the money due from uh, Barcelona to somebody else, just like you'd you'd sell an IOU, which which is I, 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 not yeah. something we normally do. In our daily lives, it's not just something we norm, don't normally do. I've never done it, frankly. And I've been in some dodgy finance, as you know already from having a pint last week. I've been in some dodgy financial situations in my life, but that's not that. It's I think partly it's it's not that it's a difficult story to follow. It's the eye-watering amounts of money that are kind of difficult. But it's interesting to hear that even Barcelona can't afford to pay that sort of money up front. Well, uh, that would have been built into Coutinho's contract right. in all probability. Um, when Barcelona was selling Neymar, what they said to PSG is that he has this buyout clause, which I think was €220 million, Euros, right. but that has to be paid immediately. Now, PSG are one of the few clubs in the world who can write out a cheque for an, an incredible sum of money right. because of the nature of their owners. But so, it's only really... PSG and City that could possibly do that on a very slight Palace related detour and I will do that as often as I can especially as you support <clears throat> Brighton with a small b um, Steve Parrish is, has been quite open and upfront about if we sell Wilfred Zahar he wants the £80 million up front he doesn't want instalments are there any clubs in Britain that could afford to pay £80 million up front for a player except ironically the two that probably wouldn't want him Liverpool and Man City uh, yeah, Manchester United have got three hundred million pounds in the bank. Okay, well, Manchester United is a subject for next the next pod, so we'll we'll keep that dry. That's interesting. Um, before we get into a couple of readers' questions, because as as promised, we will be driven by readers' questions as weeks go by. Um, a friend of mine did mention that because uh, we talked about football finances last week, there is another country. Well, there are more countries than, than two in Britain. There's the you know, Scottish football is uh, not as popular as it should be outside Rangers and Celtic. In in general, even if you take those two clubs out of it, um, is Scottish football finances are they as parlous as they seem to be in England, or are they are they able to live within their means? Or if if they didn't have regular games in the couple league against the bigger clubs, would they be in dangerous situations? Scottish football is run really well financially, and the reason for that is that. You don't have clubs chasing the dream. If, if you think, you know, uh, why do clubs okay. in the championship lose money? It's because they know they can make a fortune from getting promoted to the Premier League. In the case of the Scottish Championship versus the SPFL, yes, you'll get a bit more money. And yes, you will get to, to, to play Rangers and Celtic and therefore have bigger crowds. But the, because the step-up's not so big, you don't have owners coming in and trying to buy success. And therefore, the vast majority of clubs, if you look at the SPFL as a whole, the SPFL makes money. The okay, Premier League thank doesn't. you. That's, that's, that's interesting. And we're, so, um, so for my Scottish friends who I know are listening, we will be covering Scottish football, but less than you'd hope because it seems that they're in a fairly decent state. Um, I want to end with, with two quite big questions from, from listeners. 
um, if only to reassure them that we will be covering them in, in further detail. Further, uh, Bernadette Coates sent us in a question. She's um, an Exeter City fan and therefore supports a club owned by the supporters, basically, which is a model I've, advoca- I've advocated for all football clubs. But again, it's that hopeless romantic thing. If only all football clubs are owned by the, the fans. And, and if I was one of them at own Palace, it probably would be a disaster, to be perfectly honest, although the kit would be changed. Um, but Bernadette wonders if we would if we would talk about support of trust-owned clubs. And also she has a, a, a question about EPPP, which I think is that there are a set of initials that we've all heard in football, and it's probably a pod of its own. But can, briefly, can you explain this whole concept of EPPP and why it doesn't seem to be a particularly good thing? Well, what happened a few years ago was the, the Premier League said to the clubs in the EFL, we will give you what we call solidarity payments. We will give you a share of our money. And if you want that money, this is how it works. We want to be able to recruit your academy players and right. youth team players, and we're going to put a cap on what we pay for those players. So effectively, they control the net wider and they can recruit players at 15 and 16 right. and so on. Um, and less money will now go to the, the EFL clubs as a, re- as a result of that. So that's how EPP works. And support, again, support our own clubs is, is something we will do a whole pod on, certainly, because, as I say, I've got this romantic notion about it. It does seem to work for big clubs in other countries. Can you imagine it would work here for clubs bigger than Exeter, for example, who... Yeah, again, we're very near to to going bust, and it's it's something I had to study recently for something else. Funnily enough, and and uh, was saved by the fans consortium, and the fans are heavily involved in running the club. But the the figures there are obviously obviously a lot less. And when Palace nearly went bankrupt the second time, it, you know there were talks of fans consortiums, but the money involved was way beyond the reach of most of us without a, a wealthy benefactor. So, is it a model that could happen in the Premier League? Um. It could just about, um, if if you have a, an existing owner who says, I'm not going to ask anything for the club, I'm going to leave this as a legacy. Um, the only trouble with that is should that club be relegated and end up in the championship, you could easily see it sliding through the divisions right, right. because somebody has to pay for the day-to-day running costs. And owners, whether you like them or hate them, in the championship and the lower divisions – those are the guys each week who are writing out these eye-watering checks. Can we as a group of fans do that? I think it's highly unlikely. Uh, well, thank you for the question, Bernard. Um, if you want to get in touch with us and, and elaborate more on how it works for Exeter and Exeter fans, that'd be great because we will do a pod on uh, fan-owned teams. And the final question is from Andrew, Andrew from Manchester, who starts with, thank you for doing this podcast. The first episode was great. Uh, just a little note to the rest of you out there. If you want to guarantee your question being read out, Say something nice at the start. I basically, I'm like a cat. I don't know Kieran well enough to know what his ego's like. I, massive, I suspect, judging by the size of his lanyard. Uh, that I'm like a cat. It's very easy to get in my good books. A couple of kibbles, little tickle behind the ears. I'll basically read anything out. It's, it's, it, it's kind of. I'm guessing that that Andrew from Manchester is roughly the same age as me, but he describes himself as a a Burnley fan who's feeling very lucky, but essentially says he has a friend. It's, it's you. We know, Andrew. You don't have to say it's a friend. It's you. That's fine. Basically, what, what he's saying is, and it, it, it says football now is the way it's always been. In, in Rich teams tend to win the most. Poor teams very, very rarely 
go out of business. I mean, we had Maidstone a long time ago, Berry now, unfortunately. And his, his question is, is there anything to suggest that this can't just carry on? If no other club is expelled from the league for 10 years, won't we all just be in the, the same position, maybe, but with maybe higher numbers? That, you know, essentially, Liverpool and Man City, until Man United get their act together, and Tottenham and Chelsea and Arsenal get their act together, are going to win everything. But unless there's a, an unusual Leicester situation again, or unless a, a club like Burnley or Palace are bought by mega-rich uh, Far Eastern millionaires, the same six clubs will win everything. The same clubs will sort of circulate between the Championship and the Premier League. And no clubs, bar one or two-odd exceptions, will, will go out of business. So... Is that, it kind of seems fair to me in a way. It's also counterintuitive because we're doing a pod every week about football finances. But in a way, things do, do seem to just trundle on a little bit, don't they? I think they will trundle on and I think that will be reinforced because I think you and I are probably both old enough to remember Derby County winning the first division, Nottingham yes. Forest, Aston Villa, Blackburn, Leeds United and sides such as Ipswich being regular contenders for the top positions. Now, with the with the advent of uh, Champions League money, which can be worth up to £100 million a season, that gives the existing elite such a command, commanding advantage over the other clubs that the chances of another club coming through are re- relatively remote. What scared the living daylights out of the elite clubs was Leicester winning the Premier League uh-huh. in 2016. So what have they done? They've changed the rules as to how the money is divided between the clubs to make sure that the big boys get even more, to make sure that there's never another Leicester City. That's interesting. Um, the finances of the NFL compared to the Premier League is something I'd like to get into in future podcasts. Uh, next week's podcast is um, it's not a Man United special as I hate to lose the words Man United and special in the same pod to be perfectly honest um, but we will be looking at Man United who seem to be a club that are mega rich you just said so yourself minutes ago but poor on the pitch um, and we've got a lot more of your listener questions uh, thank you for listening today to myself Kevin Day and Kieran Maguire uh, the Price of Football podcast is a Dapdip production as is recorded at Soho Radio Studios we'll see you next week this is Acast Recommends every week we pick one of our favourite shows and this is one we think you're going to love this is Creepy, a collection of the most famous and disturbing stories and urban legends from the deepest, darkest corners of the web. Hosted by creator John Grills and a cast of creepy narrators. New stories added every Sunday. Listener discretion is advised. Listen free on your favorite podcatcher or find us at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts. ACAST is home to the biggest podcast from the U.S. and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via ACAST or wherever you get your podcasts.